Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. We are glad that you have joined us today as John continues his series on the book of Revelation with his message, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. If I had my way, every Sunday that I preach, I would use these 30 minutes to encourage you, to lift you up. Because, you know, that's what I think we need more than anything. Life can be hard, and we go through things, and we just need encouragement to keep on keeping on, to keep on trusting God. And there's nothing that builds us up quite like somebody who is in, who's an encourager. I know this past week, someone encouraged me. We were down at MD Anderson, and I was getting on an elevator at one point. I was by myself at this time, and there was this young man pushing what I assumed to be his mother in a wheelchair. So they got on the elevator, and then there was this other lady that was on, and they got on the elevator in front of me, and I said to the three of them, I said, do you mind if I, if I ride with y'all? And they said, no, there's plenty of room, so come on. And I got in there, and the doors closed, and, and I just sensed that all three of these people were Christians. I could just feel it in their, the presence, their, in their countenance, and especially the lady standing to my right. And so I said something that I guess is a little unusual to say in an elevator to three strangers, but I just felt it in my heart. I said, uh, I said it's a real honor for me to ride this elevator with the three of you today. And that one lady looked over at me, and she said, I sense God in your voice. And it made me feel so good. And I just smiled and she said, are you a preacher? (laughs) And I smiled bigger and I said, I am a preacher. And she kind of did a little shiver and she said, I can smell a preacher a mile away. (laughs) And I didn't know if I should be encouraged or discouraged when she said that. But the doors opened and I walked out and I chose to be encouraged because I think I knew what she meant by that. But you know, I was reminded that encouragement is so very important. And I really think most sermons, because the Bible is full of encouraging verses and encouraging truths, keep on keeping on, keep trusting God, keep moving forward, don't give up. A better day is coming. God's going to bring good out of whatever you're facing. So encouragement is so very important. And like I say, if I had my way, every sermon I preach would be on encouragement. But the fact is, the same Bible that gives all these great verses on encouragement also has quite a bit to say about the judgment of God. Now, as a preacher, I find no joy in preaching a sermon on the judgment of God. Sometime I'll hear a preacher preaching, for example, about hell. And the preacher gets so excited preaching about hell that you almost get the impression he's glad people are going to go there one day. And I don't feel that way about hell. We have to preach on it because it's in the Bible, but it brings me no joy to think about hell and the fact that one day many people will be there. And I feel the same way about the judgment of God. I I wish that every sermon could be uplifting and encouraging. But the fact is we have to preach the whole counsel of God. And there are places in the Bible where we read quite a bit about the judgment of God. 
And so as a preacher, it is my responsibility not only to preach encouraging sermons, although I wish I could do every one like that, but it is to preach the whole counsel of God. And so when the Bible talks about judgment, we have to preach judgment. We have to preach everything that is in the Bible. And so with that being said, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation in chapter number 6. Now, we're studying through this book. If you're visiting with us today... For the last several weeks, we have been studying through the, in the book of Revelation. We've studied chapter 1, where John had this amazing vision of Jesus. We've studied in chapters 4 and 5, where John was taken to heaven, and he got to see all the wonderful things that are now happening in heaven. And for the last four weeks, we've been thinking about, about heaven and all the beauty and all the wonder and everything great that is going on in heaven. But today, we come to chapter 6. And beginning with chapter 6 and all the way through chapter 19, we're studying about a period of judgment. It's known as the Great Tribulation. Now, the Bible teaches that after the church is raptured up into heaven, after all of us as Christians are taken to be with God in heaven, that complete horror will come upon this earth, and that horror is the judgment of God. We learn from a passage of prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that this period of, of tribulation will last for seven years. The Antichrist, at the beginning of that period, will make a peace treaty with Israel and with all the other nations. He will allow the Jewish people to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. They've not had a temple since the year 70 AD when the Romans burned it down. And, God, and the Antichrist is going to broker this peace treaty. In the middle of the seven-year period, he's going to break the peace treaty. The Antichrist will set himself up in the temple. He will demand to be worshipped by all the people. It's described in the Gospels as the abomination of desolation. He will begin to persecute and try to kill as many Jewish people as he can. It's going to be seven horrible years. Before we get into the reading of the Scripture today... Maybe you're asking this question, well, what is the purpose of this seven-year period, this great tribulation? Well, I've written down two things. You might want to jot this down if you're a note taker. Number one, the first purpose of the tribulation, it is God's judgment on those who have rejected Jesus Christ and whose sins have not been forgiven. You see, God judges sin. I think sometimes we have the idea, as, as I read in the quote, we so stress the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy and kindness of God, the patience of God, that we sometimes forget the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God. And God is too just and too righteous to overlook sin. I think sometimes we just think that God's going to turn his head on sin. No, every sin must be punished. Now, your sins and my sins will either be punished by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, or if a person rejects Jesus and refuses Jesus, that means that person's sins are on himself or on herself, and so those sins must be punished. Think of it this way. If God were ever going to overlook sin, if God were ever going to be easy on sin, it would have been when Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay for our sins. But God wasn't easy on Jesus. Jesus had to die and be punished for sins. And so every sin in the world is either on Jesus 
or it's on the person who sinned and who has rejected Jesus. So the first purpose of the tribulation, it is God's judgment on those whose sins have not been forgiven. Number two, the second purpose of the tribulation, it is God's mercy giving unsaved people a a second chance and really a final chance to repent and get saved. So here again, we see God's judgment, but we also see God's mercy. And as we'll see next Sunday morning, many will be saved during the tribulation period. Now, what is the purpose of our studying the great tribulation? Why would I spend, why would we spend the next 13 weeks beginning in chapter 6 through chapter 19? We'll only probably get through chapter 18 before we pause for the Christmas break. But why would we spend that much time studying the book or studying the great tribulation? Number one reason, it is a warning to the unsaved. What we're going to be looking at today and for the next several weeks, it is a warning to those who will be in the services or who will be listening who have not made peace with God, who have never received Jesus Christ. It is a warning to the unsaved. And number two, it is a wake-up call to those of us who are saved to do everything we can to bring our family members and friends to Jesus Christ before it is too late. So it's a warning, and it is also a wake-up call. Now, we're in chapter 6, but go back to chapter 5. I want us just to review a little bit what we saw last week. This will get us ready. Let's begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 5. John is in heaven, and he's seeing this vision. And he said, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so as we saw last week, the only person in heaven who was worthy to take this scroll from the Father's hand was Jesus Christ himself. Now with that background, go to chapter 6 and look in verse number 1. John said, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, like thunder, come up here. And so Jesus now begins to open this scroll. He begins, one, there are seven seals on the scroll, and so one seal at a time, Jesus begins to loose this scroll. And as the scroll is opened, we discover about the great tribulation. We learn phase by phase about what will one day happen as far as judgment on this earth. And it's interesting, the first four seals talk to us about the about four horse riders, or what some have called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And these are people who are beginning to execute God's judgment on the earth. And so let's just spend most of our time today thinking about who these four horsemen are and what the judgment they represent is. The first horseman we read about in verse number two. John said, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, 
and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, the question is, who is the rider of this horse? Well, you might be tempted to say, this is Jesus, and he's going out to execute God's judgment on the earth. But in fact, it is not Jesus. Instead, it is the Antichrist who always tries to look like Jesus. I read last week, in my own Bible reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it describes the devil as an angel of light. And the devil always tries to make himself look like God. And so here we find the Antichrist riding on a white horse. In Revelation chapter 19, we'll find Jesus riding on a white horse. Here we find the Antichrist with a crown on his head. In Revelation chapter 19, we'll find Jesus with many crowns on his head. So the Antichrist is trying to look like Jesus, but it's not Jesus. It is the Antichrist. How do you know that? How do we know that? Well, first of all, this crown that he is wearing is called a Stephanos. It is a victor's crown. In other words, the Antichrist during the tribulation will have a a period of time where it appears as though he has total victory over the whole earth. But in Revelation 19, we read about Jesus' crown. It is a royal diadem. It is a kingly crown, and only the Son of God could wear that crown. Also, on this uh, rider of the white horse in Revelation 6, we find that he is promising something he cannot deliver. He's promising peace. And as I mentioned a moment ago, at the beginning of the tribulation, he will make a peace treaty with the world and he will promise everybody if you'll follow me I'll give you peace but he is unable to give the peace that he promises three and a half years into it it, he'll break that treaty notice he has a bow but there are no arrows and so he's making a peace treaty but he's making a treaty that he cannot keep. And so this is the Antichrist. This is Satan's Superman. Another way we know that this is the Antichrist is not just because of the description in verse 2, but these next three riders on their horses would indicate to us that they are following the Antichrist and it goes from bad to worse. So let's look at the second horseman. And beginning in verse 3, we read, When Jesus opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. So now the peace treaty is broken, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And so the second horseman is war. And we read here that war will break out on the earth. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Man against man. The sword that he is describing that this rider is wearing is a sword that you would use in hand-to-hand combat. And so what we read here is that a war is going to come to this earth. Just like Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24, there will be wars and here it is. Now, we know that the world we live in today is full of war. And we know that terrible things are happening all over the world. People are killing each other. We see this on the news almost daily. Well, as bad as it is now, it will be much worse during the tribulation because during the tribulation, there will be no Christians on the earth, at least not at the beginning of the tribulation. Now, many will be saved, but when the tribulation begins, all the Christians will be in heaven. Now, how did Jesus describe Christians in the Sermon on the Mount? He said that we are the salt 
and we are the light. Salt of the earth, light of the world. What does salt do? Salt preserves. What does light do? Light brightens. And so if you take the salt and the light out of the world, there's no preservation and there's no light. And people are going to be killing one another like like unto which the world has never seen. Let's move on and see the third horseman. And he, the, the rider on this horse is named Famine because famine often follows war. In verse 5, when Jesus opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of wheat of barley uh, for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So what is, what is happening here? We're reading about famine on the earth. Let's talk about this. What's this mean? A quart of wheat and barley and denarius. What is all this? Well, in Bible times, a denarius was a day's wages for a common worker. You go out and work for a day, you get a denarius. That's, that's the equivalent of a day's wages. Well, normally, a denarius would buy 10 quarts of wheat and 30 quarts of barley. Now think about that. In, b- before the tribulation, in New Testament times, a denarius would have bought 10 quarts of wheat, 30 quarts of barley. But we read here that during the tribulation, during this famine, a denarius will only buy one quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. In other words, it will buy one-tenth of what it normally would have bought, one-tenth the amount of food. Now, one quart of wheat was the daily ration for a soldier. So think about this. It says that with a denarius, you will be able to buy one quart of wheat. That's what a soldier would take every day to live. And so during the tribulation, a person will go out to work all day long, and he'll be paid. He'll get a denarius. But where he used to could have bought ten quarts of wheat, he can only buy one quart. In other words, he can only feed himself. He'll work all day, and with the money he makes, he will be able to feed himself for that day. No money for his wife, no money, no food for his kids. So maybe he'll split it up, maybe he'll eat it all, who knows. But the point is, it will be a terrible, terrible famine on the earth. And so there'll be great scarcity of food. And then it says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. It seems to mean here, the oil and wine would be a reference to, to wealthy people, to those who are living in luxury. And so it seems they'll, at least at this point, have plenty of oil and plenty of wine. So the rich will still be rich, but most people are not going to be rich, and even those who do will not be able to buy as much as they could have before, but it will be a terrible, terrible famine that will come upon the earth, and that's what the third rider represents. Now, think about what we've said so far. The first rider is the Antichrist on a white horse. The second rider is, is uh, war on a red horse, bloody red war. The third rider is on this black horse, and he represents famine. And the fourth rider, we read about in, cha- in verse number 7, is death. And it says, when Jesus opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. And so death is the fourth rider, and he is on a pale horse, the color of death and human decomposition and decay. And so here's death, 
and following after death is Hades. We've talked about Hades before. Hades is the place where non-Christians go immediately when they die. So we could say it this way, death will take the body and Hades will take the soul. And there will not only be death, but there will be widespread death. And it says people will be killed by the sword, with hunger, uh, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So the animals themselves will be uh, even more savaging and ravaging than they are today. And it says a fourth of the earth is going to be killed. Now, you think about the Antichrist and the people who are following the Antichrist today. Well, if you choose to follow the Antichrist, or maybe I could just say it this way, if you're not following Jesus, you're in fact following the Antichrist. Because if you're not pro-Christ, you would have to be, by definition, Antichrist. And we read in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 that the spirit of Antichrist is already prevalent in the world. And there are many small Antichrist out there. There's a sense in which every unbeliever is Antichrist. They're against Christ. And so if a person has not chosen for Christ, they have chosen against Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, if you're not with me, you're against me. So if you're not with Jesus, in essence, you're following the Antichrist. And what can you expect in your life? Well, you can expect exactly what we've seen here today. First of all, you can expect conflict in your life. You can expect unmet needs in your life. And you can ultimately expect death. See, that's where the Antichrist, that's where the devil always leads us. Conflict and then unmet needs and ultimately death. But if you follow Christ, you can expect the opposite of that. What's the opposite of war? Peace. What's the opposite of unmet needs? Provision. What's the opposite of death? Life. And so if you choose Jesus, you say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow the, the one who's on a white horse with a diadem on his head, King of kings and Lord of lords. What can you expect? You can expect a life not problem-free, but you can expect a life full of peace, full of provision, and ultimately full of life everlasting and life eternal. But not the Antichrist. Those who choose against Christ will go from bad to worse. There'll be war, there'll be famine, and ultimately there will be death, there will be Hades, and finally there will be eternity in the lake of fire in a place called hell itself. Now, let's look beginning in verse 9 at what is called the fifth seal, the cry of the martyrs. And what I want to do with this I want to save the fifth seal till next Sunday. And I want to combine the cry of the martyrs with chapter 7. And you might want to read this week chapter 7 in preparation for next week's sermon. But next Sunday morning, I want to preach a sermon entitled, A Great Revival and the Beheading of Many Christians. Because that's what's going to happen during the tribulation. There will be many saved, but many of those who are saved will be beheaded. They will be martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to save that fifth seal till next week and deal with it in that context. So now let's look at the sixth seal in verse number 12. John said, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree, fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, like a piece of parchment rolled up. The sky is going to do that one day. And every mountain and island was moved 
out of its place. You think of all the beautiful mountains in the world, the Smoky Mountains where I grew up, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and all the beautiful mountains, and all the beautiful islands that you've probably traveled and seen some of these islands. Well, it says there's coming a day, every mountain, every island will be moved out of its place because of this massive earthquake. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide from and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? We hope that today's message, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, has been a blessing to you. You can find this message, along with many others, on the web at www.peacebybelieving.org under the broadcast tab. We would love to hear how Peace by Believing is touching your life please go to the Contact Us tab on the website and send us a message. Thank you for spending some time with us today, and we look forward to you joining us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.